0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.
1: Hi everyone, it's great to be with you. My name is Sarah and the Bible passage for this morning is Isaiah 36, 1 to 10. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you are able to, on your part, To set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it.
0: Well, one of my favourite movies is the second Lord of the Rings movie, The Two Towers. There you go, Paul. I know you love that. Uh, at the heart of this movie is the battle at Helm's Deep, a fortress set deep in the white mountains of Middle Earth. It's the last stronghold of the kingdom of Rohan, the place that they fall back to as the armies of Saruman swarm across their land. And the movie really ratchets up the tension. This is their last Stand. If Helm's Deep falls, then the whole kingdom of men falls with it. And it seems almost inevitable that they will succumb. Their enemies are so fierce and so numerous, surely they can't be held back. That's what this part of Isaiah feels like. Today we're looking at four chapters of Isaiah. Don't worry, we're not going to go through every verse of those four chapters. But we're looking at Isaiah 36 to 39 the battle for Jerusalem. The scene is set in verse 1 of 36. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Hezekiah is the king of Judah, God's people, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. Now, the Assyrians were really the big bullies of the ancient world. They'd already destroyed Israel, the northern kingdom, and now they're driving through Judah. In fact, Assyrian histories recorded that they had besieged and defeated 46 fortified cities and captured 200,000 people, and now only Jerusalem is left In fact, Sennacherib would boast of Hezekiah, I made him a prisoner in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. To complete the job, he sends in this bloke called the Rabshakeh, who's kind of like a a diplomat or some army general. And he says to him, and what do you rest this trust of yours? How do you imagine you're going to survive? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And then he says this line, in whom do you now trust? Who do you trust to rescue you? That is the great question of this battle. Hezekiah and his people are facing their last stand. Everything else has gone. Only Jerusalem remains. They look doomed. They need rescuing. But who will do it? Who can they trust? And really, God's people have faced the same question many, many times. They faced it before this in the Old Testament, in Egypt, as they were under the slavery of the Pharaoh, or think of the stories as they came into the Promised Land, Gideon with the Midianites, or Israel and the Philistines, David and Goliath. These are the same question posed throughout the history of God's people. In the church, in the book of Acts, as the authorities try to clamp down on the first Christians, ever since then, when people have come against God's people, the Spanish Inquisition, the the persecution of Christians in China or India today, whether it's physical or, or even if it's political, just this week, we've seen laws introduced in Victoria that might make certain Christian practices, certain prayers, illegal. And every time God's people are faced with this question, as we we feel surrounded, in whom do we trust? Who do we look to for rescue? And I want to suggest today that there's a few options. We see the three options that face God's people here in this passage. The first is that they could trust themselves. They could try to defend themselves and ride this thing out. Immediately, it's obvious that that's not possible. That's not an option. They're surrounded. Everything has fallen. And we even notice in this strange little thing, a little detail in verse 2. Uh, we're told that the Rabshakeh meets with the diplomats of Judah. by the. He stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's fields. A very specific little detail. But it actually points to something. There's evidence to suggest that Hezekiah had set up tunnels Uh, underneath the ground to bring rivers into the city of Jerusalem. And this Rabshakeh is now standing on top of this saying, I'm owning this. I control your water. So they're under siege and now they've lost their water supply. They can't rely on themselves. Well, then another option is that they could trust others. They could find an ally who could save them. But who? who? Who could be strong enough to resist this mighty superpower of the Assyrians. It appears that Judah had an alliance with Egypt, but that looks flimsy. Look how the Rabshakeh puts it. Behold, you're trusting in Egypt that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. If if you try to lean on this, it'll fall apart or it'll turn against you. You can't trust them. You can't rely on anyone else either. In, In fact, Trying to trust in humans is how they'd gotten to this mess in the first place. You see, this is not the first time that something has happened in this very spot, this conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. We actually encounter the same phrase in Chapter 7. King Hezekiah had a father called King Ahaz, and several time, a generation before, he had faced another threat, the threat of... Uh, of the syrians and of their own estranged cousins in the northern kingdom of israel and god had sent Isaiah to meet with ahaz at that very spot at that conduit of the upper pool and he says to him uh, be be careful this is chapter 7 verse 4 be careful be quiet do not fear and do not let your heart be faint you've got these enemies coming against you but don't stress Don't try to find some other rescuer. Just trust in me. That's what he's saying. But he gives him a warning. Verse 9, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. You must trust me. This is the only way I will rescue you. You must trust me. But he doesn't trust him. Instead, he turns to Assyria, making an alliance with them. And now we see that those former allies have turned against God's people. In trusting in human alliances, God's people have actually exposed themselves to greater danger. Their allies have become their enemies. It's not possible for them to be rescued by humans. And so they have only got one option, their last option, trusting in God. They're really being asked, Will they trust in God? And they're asking, can we trust in God? Can we rely on God to rescue us? Is he able to do this for us? We can say that the Assyrians think that God is not able We see that in what the Rabshakeh says, verse uh, 18 of chapter 36. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sethabaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? You see, in the pagan world of this time, people thought that there were lots of gods and they were all uh, associated with certain nations. So you had the gods of Egypt and the gods of Assyria and so on. They kind of had regional jurisdictions, postcodes, if you will, that they they worked in. And so if you came into Egypt, you were stepping onto the land of the Egyptian gods. This meant that they were very tightly linked to those nations. And so if you went to war against a nation, you also went to war against the gods of that nation. It was kind of like this massive struggle between the gods as well as humans. Now, Sennacherib and the Assyrians have defeated lots of nations, and so they believe that they have defeated lots of gods. He's not afraid of any god. And so when he comes up against Judah and he hears about the Jewish god, Yahweh, he's not afraid. He's not worried. I've defeated all these other gods. I'll defeat this god as well. And we see that the the tension starts to build up more and more. Uh, he keeps pressing and and uh, taunting the gods of uh, the God of Israel, or the God of God's people. He taunts Yahweh. I'll destroy you. I've destroyed all these other gods. I'll destroy him. And so Hezekiah faces this horrible moment, this great test. Everything around him suggests that they're in trouble. He's wondering himself if God can rescue him. I'm sure you've had those moments where people have questioned your faith in God as if God can do anything, as if he's powerful enough. Can you really rely on him? They've kind of rubbished your faith. It would be easy to turn away from God in those moments. But I want you to see what Hezekiah does. Chapter 37, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. It would have been very tempting to walk away from God, but instead he turns to God and then he prays and he asks Isaiah to pray, verse 4. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. This is a big moment. This is a scary moment for Hezekiah, but he turns towards God. It can be hard to do this. We may question if God is there when the crisis comes to us. We may question whether he will listen or whether he will act. Sometimes we assume that he won't, that he won't listen to us. Even if he's there, he wouldn't listen to us. And you actually get that sense of Hezekiah. He comes to God, but he asks Isaiah to pray for him. Sometimes, don't we do that when there's something that we really want? We ask someone else to pray for it because we're worried that God won't listen to us. Well, God does give an answer. The answer comes through swiftly in verse 5. God says, do not be afraid of the words that you've heard. Behold, I'll put a spirit in him and he shall hear a rumour and return to his own land and I'll make him fall by the sword in his own land. God says, I'm going to rescue you. But it doesn't happen straight away. Uh, The Assyrians are sent off to fight some other war. But then there's this last message that they give. Verse 10, thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And so we have this. the, The test has been intensified in this moment. We've got two promises It's a battle of these promises. God has promised to deliver his people, but the Assyrians are saying, you can't trust that God. We promise that we will destroy you. Now we have this moment. In whom will they trust? Well, as the crisis deepens, we see Hezekiah's faith deepen as well. Verse 14 Hezekiah received a letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. First of all, he was tentative. He was asking Isaiah to pray for him. But now he's just desperate. He prays to God directly. And he lays it out before God. There's something symbolic in that act. I, I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where it's almost like you don't have any words left. You just say, God, here is this thing that I have. This is my desperation. I'm just laying it before you. And then as he does this, as he, sub, as he brings it to God and, and humbly asks God to resolve it, then he finds the words to pray. And it's just the most beautiful prayer. Verse 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. This is one of the most beautiful prayers in the Bible, I think. And in it we see the God that Hezekiah sees, the God that Hezekiah is willing to trust. Notice how he addresses God, verse 16. He is the Lord of hosts enthroned above the cherubim. That's language from the temple. He's he's highlighting the holiness and the majesty of God. He is the Lord of hosts, the commander of heaven's armies. And he recognises that God is sovereign over all. You are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You're not a local God. You're not bounded by a line on a map. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. And that's because you made it. You are the creator. You have made heaven and earth, he says. He's worshipping God here, but he's also uh, speaking to himself. He's reminding himself of what this God is like. And so he, he keeps going. He believes that God is not just capable of anything, but that God will want to do something. So he says that the God is the God of Israel, the one who chosen his people and entered into a covenant with them, promising to protect them. And so now that his people are in danger, he's asking God to act. Please do something. And I want you to notice in verse 17 that he actually kind of there's this really interesting approach that he takes. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. You see, there's this humility in Hezekiah's prayer, but there's also a real boldness He's basically asking, he's appealing to God, appealing to God's honour, appealing almost to God's sense of pride, not in a bad sense, but that he's asking God to recognise the need to act, that there's something he must do. You see, the Assyrians assume that Yahweh is just like everyone else, but Hezekiah knows that God is different and now he's asking God to prove it, to do something, to show it. Verse 18, truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. They are dead gods. you're the living God. They're fake, but you're real. They're false, but you're true. So show them. And he says, hear, see, save. You're alive. These other gods, they're they're made of human hands. They can't see, they can't hear, but you can. You're alive. So hear and see and save. I want to ask us, when we face a crisis in our life, whatever that crisis may be. Do we approach God like this? Do we recognize that this is the living God? Not some dead God, not some fake God, not a static God, but a one that is alive, who can hear, who can see the situation and can act in it because that's what we see here. All of this time have been asked, who will Hezekiah trust? Will he trust God? And now we see the God who is trustworthy as God acts. First, God has a message for Sennacherib, verse 23 of chapter 37. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord. God is basically saying, do you realize who you're messing with here? The giant is stirring. This is the God that Hezekiah has sought out. This is a God, in fact, of all the kingdoms of the earth, and it's as this God of all the kingdoms that he now addresses Sennacherib, this king who sees himself as so powerful. Verse 26, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. You see, Sennacherib imagines that he is the Lord of his own destiny, that he has the power to bend things to his will. But now Yahweh makes it very clear that God has always been behind it, that he is in power only because God has allowed him to be. God is in control. As Daniel says in chapter 2 of Daniel, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. That's what God can do. And right now, it's time to remove Sennacherib. Verse 28, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Complete control. And so it proves. Verse 36, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. When it comes, the conclusion of this story is sudden and and almost anticlimactic. For two chapters, we've had all of this tension. It's been building up and then suddenly, just in one verse, it's resolved. Everyone's wondering, will we be okay? Is God going to rescue us? And he just does. It's just over, bar the shouting. To use the illustration of the Lord of the Rings, this is like you get to the Battle of Helm's Deep and all the orcs just fall flat on their face. You know, Aragorn doesn't get to sort out at all. Gandalf doesn't wave his wand around. And Legolas doesn't get to like surf down on his shield, like, you know, he doesn't get to do that. None of that is needed. It's just over, just like that. It's anticlimactic. But it's gloriously anticlimactic. You see, God has shown his power Sennacherib believed that he was great, but God has just disposed of him, just like that. And we see just how unique God is in Sennacherib's end, verse 37. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch his god, Adramelech and Shereza his sons struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon his son reigned in his place. There's something very poignant and uh, fitting in this. Sennacherib had boasted in his strength and taunted Yahweh. Imagine that he was greater than these gods, but Yahweh has defeated him. And, And then Sennacherib discovers the ineffectiveness of his own gods. It's in the temple of one of his gods that he gets killed. His god can't protect him. Not like Yahweh protected his people. And before, uh, Sennacherib had wanted to stoke a mutiny amongst God's people, but he can't even trust his own children. He's completely defeated and ashamed. And all the glory goes to God. His people didn't do anything. And so the question becomes, in whom would you trust? In yourself, in some human rescuer, or in God, the living God? God. And see, actually, I think there's another reason why the description of the battle is so brief. I think it's because the real drama is in the battle of trust. It was in those days where Hezekiah worried and fretted and mourned and laid everything before God. That's when the battle was happening. It wasn't a battle out here on the battlefield. It was a battle in here, in his heart. Would he trust God? Well, Hezekiah did trust God. He prayed and God answered. He trusted and God showed that he was worthy of that trust. God saw, God heard, and so God saved. To quote Psalm 33, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. That's the lesson here. But it's not the only lesson. You see, it would be wonderful if the story finished there, if that was the last picture we had of Hezekiah, We saw only his humility and his faith. But actually, there's more to come. In chapter 39, we're told of a visit to Hezekiah from the Babylonians, another emerging power. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he'd been sick and had recovered. That's explained in chapter 38. In verse 2, we're told that Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. In fact, he does even more than that. He showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his, his whole armoury, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. And if you're feeling a sense of worry as you hear that, you're supposed to feel that. You see, in chapter 36, Hezekiah was asked the question, in whom do you trust? He realized he'd come to see that he couldn't trust himself. He couldn't trust anyone else. He could only trust God. But now it seems like he has forgotten that. He's boasting. He's trusting in himself. And he's entrusting himself to this ally, to these Babylonians. And it's an ally who again will turn on him. That's what we discover Isaiah the prophet comes to Hezekiah and says, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. All of those things that you boasted of, that you showed off, will be taken away and your people with them. And that's just as it happened. Just as God warned Hezekiah. A couple of generations later, Judah is finally overrun and the people are taken off to Babylon. And perhaps worst of all, Hezekiah doesn't seem to care about it. He realizes this is not going to happen in his lifetime. So he says in verse 8, The word of the Lord that you've spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my day. Do so you see that? God is sending this message of judgment, but he's like, it's, it's not going to be my problem. That's really cold. That's harsh. But this is the lasting impression that we have of Hezekiah. This is the last thing that we see from him. He has, as one writer suggests, lost his sense of God. He'd forgotten God's greatness and his need of him. Forgotten that he owes everything to him and forgotten how God cares for his people. And it's actually interesting to compare Hezekiah with Sennacherib. At first, they seem totally different. Sennacherib resists God and wants to destroy God's people. Hezekiah relies on God and God's people are saved. But then he falls apart. He ignores God and forgets God. And in the end, that dooms his people. He doesn't look like the villain. But actually, in ignoring God, he does just the same. I think we're being invited invited to see something here, two great uh, principles. No enemy can truly destroy God's people, but no friend can faithfully rescue them. No human friend can do that. Sometimes there are great forces massed against God's people who would seek to destroy them. God will rescue his people, we must also be wary that we don't then ignore God and forget God because that's just as deadly. And so we see at the end of this dramatic story that God's people still need rescuing. We always need rescuing and we need the perfect rescuer. All of Isaiah points to Jesus and this story does as well. Jesus came to save God's people, to save us, to rescue us from our great enemy. But it turns out that that great enemy is us. It's us. We all either defy God, like Sennacherib did, or we ignore him, like Hezekiah eventually did. We resist him or we forget him. And both things make us enemy of God. So Jesus came to rescue us from ourselves, to rescue us from the power and the penalty of our sin. But to do that, he had to face his own great crisis, the crisis of the cross. And in that moment, he faced the question, in whom do you trust he could have found some human ally. He could have said the right thing at the trial. I mean, you you read the trial uh, descriptions and Pilate's like, why aren't you saying something? You could rescue yourself. He could have trusted himself. Where Judah had no power, Jesus did have power. He could have rescued himself. Remember what he says to Peter in the garden as they arrest him, don't you think that I could just appeal to God and he'll send 12 legions of angels? But no, he chose to trust God. Oh, there were there were tremors, there were difficult moments. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me in the garden. He says that. But then in the very next breath, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How tempting it must have been on the cross when they're taunting him. You've rescued other people. Why don't you save yourself? But he chose not to do that. Instead, He entrusted himself to his father. 1 Peter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to the father. Our great rescuer could have saved himself, but he chose not to so he could save us. He entrusted himself to God. He absorbed all of the punishment that we deserve. And the Father then raised him from the grave. He was destroyed by his enemies, but in his destruction, he rescued his people. This is the God that we serve. This is the God. The living God who hears and sees and saves. The living God who allowed himself to die so that we could live. The God who died and rose again so that we can live forever with him. In whom do you trust? In whom do we trust? When everything comes against us, will we trust this God? Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this story, an extraordinary story, a gripping story. We thank you for what we see in it. We thank you for what you teach us every time. Lord, help us to be humble. When we face a crisis in our life, when we feel like everything is against us, where people would seek to destroy us, may we turn to you and trust you. Not looking to somewhere else, not looking to our own strengths, but looking to the one who has all strength, Thank you ultimately, Lord, that you rescue us by dying for us. We confess that we are the problem, that we need rescuing from ourselves and we thank you, Jesus, that you came to make that possible. We trust you. In your name we pray. Amen.